Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Welcome to episode 62 and a very special interview with award-winning director, writer, producer, and playwright George Stevens Jr. Mr. Stevens' new book, My Place in the Sun, hits shelves May 17th. It's the story of how the son of a celebrated Hollywood director emerged from his father's shadow to claim his own place as a major force in American culture. Stevens tells an intimate and moving tale of his relationship with his Oscar-winning father and his own exciting career in Hollywood and our nation's capital. Fascinating people, priceless stories, and a behind-the-scenes view of some of America's major cultural and political events grace this riveting memoir, Hitting Shelves, May 17th. Mr. Stevens is also the founder of the American Film Institute, creator of the AFI Life Achievement Award and the Kennedy Center Honors, and has served as co-chair of the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities for President Obama. His awards and honors include 15 Emmys, 8 Writers Guild Awards, 2 Peabody Awards, the Humanitas Prize, and the 2012 Honorary Academy Award, the Oscar. He's the author of Conversations with the Great Movie Makers of Hollywood's Golden Age at the American Film Institute and the Broadway play Thurgood. Mr. Stevens joins us from his home in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, Great to be with you. Thank you for the nice introduction. Absolutely. Well, we are excited to uh, spend some time uh, this afternoon with you. Your life uh, has been committed to the promotion and preservation of the performing arts. Uh, We've been enjoying your book. It's a fast-paced uh, story. Uh, it's fun and easy to read, and uh, just a ton of Hollywood history in there. Uh, you come from a, a long line of entertainers, uh, all the way back to the San Francisco stage in the 19th century, to the silent film era, uh, to Academy Award-winning films, like we talked about, your dad, Emmy Award-winning television programs, and, of course, your Broadway play. Uh, a story that I really enjoyed at the beginning of your book is, uh, is about you uh, starting off as a youth, of uh, very young, 1933, on one of the R Gang films and Wild Poses. Now, this that's a story you say that you, you admit to not remembering. But maybe you can tell us, what's, what's your first showbiz memory going all the way back? I guess, um, I think the first one was I, I visited, I, I remember I had broken my arm. I'd fallen off of a double-decker bed. I must have been around 10 or maybe 11. And I remember going, maybe it's because I've seen a picture of it, but going to the R case studio where my father was making a picture called Penny Serenade with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. And I remember being on the set and there was a train station and, and snow at the um, Columbia studio. So in your early life, I mean, you were, you were brought up in this, in this industry or in this uh, in environment. And I imagine that just, did you have a creative childhood as a result of being surrounded by this, this atmosphere? What's interesting, Greg, we lived in Toluca Lake, which was in the valley. Um, and it was kind of a little village and uh, with kind of normal people, except at the other end of the block lived a family called Crosby, a man named Bing with his five sons. And uh, Amelia Earhart, the aviatrix, lived on Valley Spring Lane. And Al Jolson and Ruby Keeler had a house and Bob Hope lived, but they didn't, it didn't feel like show business. And my parents kind of kept me apart from it. And I, I did in school, I edited the, the school newspaper and 
and the yearbook and you know and I I was that have a a creative bent. I think uh, the first when I graduated from high school, my father had been away at war for for three years and came back and made a picture called I Remember Mama. Then when I was graduating, I didn't have a job that summer. And he said, well, you can help me. So he gave me two assignments. One was to read the books that his, he was signed with Columbia. His company was at Columbia, excuse me, at Paramount Pictures. And so the books would come from Paramount. And my job was to read those and tell him what I thought of them and scripts. And the other was to break down Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. My father was about to make a movie which ended up being called A Place in the Sun that was based on Dreiser's two-part famous book. So I had to outline every character, every scene in two notebooks uh, because my father was about to work with the writers on the script. And the other was these books would come and a lot of them were sort of routine love stories, treacly love stories, which were not fascinating to a 17 year old <laughs> on hot summer afternoon. <laughs> but one day a book came, I remember it was a small book, a novel, and I read it in the afternoon. And I went that night, my father was in bed, he was reading, and I walked in with this book and I said, Dad, I said, this is really a good story. I think you ought to read it. And he looked at me, he said, well, well why don't you tell me the story? Hmm. So there I found myself pacing around his bed, trying to reconstruct in my mind the story of Shane, as I'd read it in Jack Schaefer's novel that afternoon. And uh, I realized, really in retrospect, in writing this book, that that was obviously my father's way of letting me have a look and see if I had any aptitude or was I was interested in his, his racket, you know, his profession. <laughs> and, um, and so that was really how I got into it. That would be the equivalent of somebody, a mechanic who has a child, getting that person to start to work on cars and things like that. Just you're getting under the hood. You're getting down and dirty into the details of, of the industry early on, which is, I imagine, probably, you know, has helped you through, you know, your, your life because you've built a strong foundation. Greg, that's a perfect analogy. Uh, and in fact, I, in, in the book, I, I tell about when I was, I guess, earlier when I was about 12 years old, dad had a 16 millimeter projector and a screen that you set up on a tripod and he would get 16 millimeter prints of his movies. And I learned to thread the projector and run them. And some were the Wheeler and Woolsey comedies, uh, you know, <laughs> when it was starting out. But then one came that became my touchstone. And it was a film he made in 1939 called Gunga Dean with uh, Victor McLaughlin, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Cary Grant. Yep wonderful outdoor adventure but it was also a film of considerable humanity and taste and i would run that film and I, and i say in the book you know that a biologist kid might have a chemistry set or as you say a you know a, a car learn to work on cars and i would watch those films and i really became deeply touched and also my father made films about outsiders 
I mean, Alice Adams, one of his early films, was in about an outsider, a girl trying to make her way, poor girl. And uh, Shane was an outsider, and Jet Rink and Giant was an outsider. And Gunga Din, this regimental beastie, the water boy, who wanted to be a soldier and was kind of training and wanted to, you know, and eventually saves the regiment. And uh, at the end, you know, when the music plays, and I just would love the scene when the colonel of the regiment at Gunga Dean's funeral would say, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean. I was touched by that. And I, looking back, I realized that my taste in films kind of began with that one. Something I really enjoyed was the correspondence that you included in your book between you, you and your father, the, the letters that you wrote, uh, some that he wrote back to you, some that he wrote to your mother, some that he wrote to uh, your grandmother uh, while he was uh, overseas, really documenting the, the war effort uh, in Europe. And uh, I just recently watched uh, Five Came Back, um, the documentary, and that was really my um, uh, introduction to a lot of your father's work. And... They spoke of how the, the, the war effort, and especially documenting some of the war crimes towards the end, uh, coming into Dachau, and, and uh, I think you used the term, as they did in Five Came Back, he was a, now a collector of evidence. Um, yeah. But his, his sentiment, his dedication to you and your mother, his character really came through in a lot of those letters, and I really appreciated that. Um, you, you also wrote, at, at well beyond your age, <laughs> I was very impressed. Working in a school, I, you don't, just don't see correspondence like that from, from kids. Uh, but uh, it, it was just a, a really a, an interesting look at, at him as a man and also as a professional. And I'm wondering if there are some other aspects of his character that you feel like he passed on to you and allowed you to interact with some of the biggest names over you know, your, your career in Hollywood, politics, pop culture. What are some things that he, that he uh, just really embedded in your character that allowed you to to be so successful in those different realms? Uh, Matt, that's a very good question. And you're, you know, about his, his influence in the war and all. And um, again, I, it, I, you know, I, I really discovered or examined that influence. And my father rarely gave instructions. I don't ever remember him telling me to, not to steal <laughs> or to <laughs> you brush my teeth. Of course, he was away at war, but he, 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 he educated by indirection and by example. I particularly remember being on the set of Shane, um, which was my first experience up in Jackson Hole, you know, with a big crew and all of the adversity that comes with movies, you know, whether you're behind schedule. And he never raised his voice. I mean, sometimes with the bullhorn he'd give instructions but you know when he talked to the actors before a scene you know he, he'd want it very quiet and finally he, he'd just say all right action you know or if there was something wasn't right with the acting he'd take one of the actors aside and have a conversation with him and i just learned how a man without raising his voice could lead an army and i i think it helped me and i also saw that he he kind of had integrity and stood by his values and i i was always comfortable when having grown up and then worked as you know as a directing alfred hitchcock and peter gunn and working as the associate producer on the diary of anne frank thinking that 
my life was going to be directing and producing movies, I, I did some, sometimes sorrowfully uh, say to myself, I'm going to spend my entire life working to become the second best film director in my family. <laughs> but that, that changed when Edward R. Murrow came into my life and, and took me to Washington during the Kennedy years to uh, head the motion picture division of USIA. And working under Ed Murrow and being 29 years old in an agency where everyone was more senior than I, certainly all the leadership, I just was comfortable dealing with people. And I, I think it was just by observing my father, I, I knew how to do it. Sounds like he, he uh, did a lot of that with humor. <laughs> yes. Yeah, dad, dad had a wonderful sense of humor. Now I'm, I'm not, I've got to fail to think of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He had a light touch. Speak softly and carry a big megaphone. <laughs> so a question for you, George. So, so you mentioned kind of this bi-coastal experience in the, in the industry from Hollywood back to D.C. Obviously, there has to be a, a cultural difference, I would imagine, between the two, the two coasts. Can you speak to that a little bit? Coming from the super creative, you know, Hollywood atmosphere over to what would seem like stuffy Washington politics? Was that it? Was there an adjustment there? What's your take on that? You know, it just kind of seemed natural. And and through time, Hollywood and Washington became more like one another. <laughs> you know, as people in Washington became more public personalities and and conscious of that. Um, I, I t tell you about impressive people, you know, and I've, I've worked with so many and who made the greatest impression uh, I was with Leonard Malton, and he has his daughter now it, it do his shows. And she said, what was that moment where you first, that pair stood up on the back of your hand when you saw a movie actor? And I, I said, you know, I really don't, can't think of that feeling because when I saw Irene and Dunn and Cary Grant, they were just people doing their work. And, and she was disappointed. And then a minute later, I said, oh, I, I'll give you the answer, uh, but it's a different one than you want to expect. And it was when I arrived in Washington, um, I was I was single, and so I was an extra man. So I got started again invited to parties, and I get invited to a party at the R. Sergeant Shriver's. That was Sergeant Shriver who started the Peace Corps, married to Eunice Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's sister. And I have a little rented car, and I put on a tuxedo, and it's snow, and I don't know how to drive in the snow. I drive out to the Shriver's house for this party for the uh, person who had been amb was ambassador to Denmark and was marrying a friend. And I go to this house and music is playing. There's a band. You go in and all these people and I see cabinet officers and senators. So here I am in, in this world. And, and, you know, and the Kennedy administration was young and vibrant. And after dinner, the Shrivers had a kind of a, a, a circular entry hallway and they, you know, they passed drinks on trays after dinner. And I have a scotch in my hand and having a wonderful time seeing all these people in, in this kind of a circular group. And the front door felt like it blew open. And through the front door in black tie with no coat comes John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Wow. And I'd never seen a president. 
And it was a day of days of black and white television. And he was in color. <laughs> and behind him was Lyndon Johnson. They'd been to a stag dinner for the king of Saudi Arabia. And he was coming late to this dinner. And he walked into this room. And I was, there were kind of two rows of us really in a circle. And he walked around and said hello. And, you know, the smile, brushing his hair. And I was in the second row and my, our eyes didn't meet, but I was in five, four feet of him. And he was just so, I mean, you know, I guess if the hair goes back and you, I don't remember that aspect, but it was just so impressive, you know, and charming. And uh, then just a few minutes later, I had been sitting with a man called Newton I. Minow, the vast wasteland speech. He was the head of the FCC. He was 36 years old, and, and I caught up with him a little later after Kennedy arrived, and I was talking to him, and he said to me, have you ever met the president? And I said, no, and continued talking, and I realized he wasn't looking, and I look over, and there's President Kennedy. And Nuno says, oh, is it Mr. President? Uh, well, I shut up. Yeah, he said, Mr. President, this is George Stevens, Jr., uh, he's uh, from, he, he's come to work with. He says, "I know all, I know about George. I have a question for you." He says, "But first, new." He says, "ABC, CBS made two hundred and fifty million dollars last year. Why can't they broadcast Jackie's tour of the White House show in color?" <laughs> and it was so typical of what you hear about President Kennedy yeah. that he always had action on his mind, or, you know, and would talk to the person. And well, it, it, it turned out that he wanted to talk to me about P2109, the film that was going to be made, you know, but it never occurred to me that the president knew of my existence. So that's perhaps a bit long winded, but uh, a story of meeting somebody I was very impressed by. That's That's right up there with everything I've heard about JFK with his ability to know so much about everything and be informed and that just shows you know talking about the the cbs thing knowing those those sorts of details uh what an amazing guy and just playing off of what you you just said but i made a film with bruce hersenson a very good young director at the time called the five cities of june for usia my job was usia we made 300 documentaries a year to show overseas telling America's story abroad. And the five cities of June was of about five cities. The fifth being um, Berlin, where President Kennedy arrived to make his famous speech at the Berlin Wall in 1963. Um, and it, it turned out to be a wonderful film, was nominated for Academy Award. And I was in Ed Murrow's staff meeting with all his, the directors of the agency, the foreign areas and all. And my assistant, my deputy walked in with a note and handed it to me and there's about 30 people at this long table. And I look at the note and I get up and walk down the stairs, one flight of stairs to my office and walk into my office and shut the door. And my secretary is dialing back the call. President Kennedy had called me and I sit down and you know, and the phone rings. I've Mrs. Lincoln, his secretary online. I'll put the president on, Mr. Stevens. 
And he said, George, he said, the five cities of June, I saw it last night. He said, I think that's the best government documentary I've ever seen. He said, how many countries is it being shown in? Uh, how many languages is it translated into? He just, you know, and it was Kennedy's was known for not calling Dean Rusk, but calling the person on the uh, on the Cambodia desk because he wanted to get the straight thing, not. <laughs> and you know, so he called me, and then I, you know, I hung up, and 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 he said, and he'd asked to send the film back. They wanted to run it again that night. But uh, it was extraordinary to, to have had that association. And he was a tr tremendous influence on me. I, as, as you see reading the book, I quote him frequently. He was our first TV president, but he also, I understand, had a real appreciation for Hollywood. He enjoyed the movies. Did you ever have a conversation with him about any of the films, the entertainment films that he enjoyed? Did he screen films regularly in the White House? He did. He did. Jackie... Jackie loved films. Jackie had, I would, if I would not disrespect the president, you might say better taste, more expansive <laughs> taste. She liked the, the foreign films and all. But I remember President Kennedy did ask me, I was in an event, why he said, have, uh, did you see um, oh, the picture Marlon Brando made, I guess it was The Ugly American, and about a diplomat in Asia. And he asked me about that. And, and he was not, not, too enthusiastic about it, but interested in it. But, uh, he, but President Kennedy, uh, when I started the Kennedy Center Honors, which, as you know, was uh, then wrote and produced it, uh, co-produced it for uh, 37 years, where we honored the great performing artists. And that was the idea at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, which is John Kennedy's memorial. We would honor uh, usually five great artists from all the different disciplines each year. But when I had the idea to do that, I went down to see the head of the Kennedy Center and my pitch was one sentence. I said, carved on the wall in marble uh, on this memorial to President Kennedy, the Kennedy Center, are these words. I look forward to an America that will not be afraid, afraid of grace and beauty that will honor achievement in the arts, the way we honor achievement in business and statecraft. The words of President Kennedy, you know, just so elevating, inspiring, that you know, led me to uh, create a television show that's still going on, you know? Amen wow. to that. Yeah. Now, um, you, you've, you say that, you know, the number of documentaries you made for the government, it's just you know, through the roof, an incredible amount. Now, someone who had made a num number of uh, government documentaries a little while before that, Walt Disney, um, did during World War II. Did you ever ever have any interactions with with him as a um, in in the industry? Well, no, but I I had interactions with Frank Capra, who did that. Like my father was a colonel in the army, the Why We Fight series, and and my father made documentaries as um, Matt was referring to. Uh, so I, I knew the history, but when I went to Washington, I was very conscious of that. I love the story in the book. Like my father, Frank Capra liked control of his pictures. And Frank Capra was a, a man not of much height. And he came and he, to a meeting at the Pentagon and there were you know, 14 generals 
and he meets them all and they've all got their fruit salad on their chests and <laughs> he's shaking hands and all and there's this long table and then finally it kind of quiets down and, and frank standing much shorter than all these generals he says he says fellas he says are we going to talk about motion pictures and they all nod he says then i'll sit at the head of the table <laughs> and that that was sort of I, I had that feeling about what i was doing at usia um, hopefully not with arrogance, but with that I really felt we needed to control the kind of films we were making. And I found a, a lot of young filmmakers, we couldn't call back John Huston and Frank Capra and George Stevens and William Wyler, that we found uh, young people in their 20s and 30s who were really just ready to make the kind of fine films that we were able to make at USIA. I was struck again watching like Five Came Back and uh, you know other programs about specifically that generation of filmmakers. Your father's generation was uh, again, especially during the war effort, their ability to jump from making fiction to nonfiction, and and that's kind of seamless move. And I'm wondering from again from your perspective as a storyteller, as a documentary storyteller, uh, you also have a stepdaughter, Caroline, who's a documentary producer. Right. What do you think is the most important element? to consider when you're telling a true story on film? Well, I, I, I think two things. You want to, um, can I tell you a story about making a film? You bet. November, 1963, shortly after that phone call I described with President Kennedy, he's shot in Dallas. And, you know, you, you can imagine how earth shaking it was, particularly the people who were involved. And I was in Washington at the time and I, had to think, what am I supposed to do at USIA? And I thought about it and I asked to see Edward R. Murrow the next morning. And I, I went to see him and I had an idea about a documentary film. And as I sat down, Ed had had his lung removed. He, had, he was a great smoker, as you know, and, um, and he was just back from the hospital and he, uh, and Ed never sat behind his desk when you went in to see him. He always went over to the sofa and sat opposite you as, as equals. I sat down and he handed me a letter. And, you know, you, you know, we had not said anything about what had happened. You know, what did you say? And I looked at this letter and it was a White House letterhead and it said, Dear, dear Ed, he said, I think I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you're back and uh, we've missed you and so important that you're back with us. He said, I saw the five cities of June and I think, and I don't think there's ever been a better government documentary and I salute you for that. And looking forward to seeing you soon, signed Jack. And here I'm holding this letter that was in his hands eight days before. And I handed the letter back to Ed and Ed, pushed the letter back to me and he said you made the film you keep the letter wow and of course i have the letter and that tells you something about ed murrow but then i told him my idea i said we have cameramen in in seven different cities abroad with 35 millimeter film shooting the reaction to president kennedy's death we intend to shoot the four days of the funeral and weave within it the story of his presidency uh, into a documentary feature-length film, the first 
USIA feature, feature length film. And I watched Ed and he, he, he listened and, and he said to me, um, first, he said, make a 10 minute film about Lyndon Johnson. Hmm. And understanding what the job was to show that there had been a peaceful transfer of power, you know, and that he said, then you can make your film about President Kennedy. But it was uh, the wisdom of the more experienced man against the kind of exuberance and, you know, letting his heart lead his head uh, making the film of President Kennedy. But we went on to make that, we went on to make both of those films, um, filming LBJ in the overall Oval Office and Gregory Peck narrative, the film, the light in the White House window flickered, but it did not go out. And, uh, and then the John F. Kennedy Years of Lightning Day of Drums was a very successful documentary. And the process is to make the story compelling and to have integrity and, and be true to the facts. That's one thing that you don't see a lot of these days. Matt was talking about the ability to jump back and forth between fiction and, and nonfiction. You don't really see that these days. You see documentary, documentarians, documentary filmmakers, and feature film, you know, uh, drama, comedy, that sort of thing. But you don't see them really jumping back and forth all that often. And I wonder if that has to do with the state of the industry or the ability of filmmakers, if they've, as they're coming up and, and learning, if they just have decided to do one, you know, kind of niche thing and, and they don't dare step across the aisle to the other. What, what do you think about that? Do you think it's an industry thing or do you think it's more of a choice from these filmmakers? I, I think it, it, to a large measure, it's a choice, but, 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 you know, many of them do. I mean, I think of Billy Friedkin and, and through the years, you know, many of the leading filmmakers have come from documentaries, but not too many of them go back to documentaries. Although occasionally one or the other, Marty Scorsese makes a documentary now and then. I think of sticks out in my mind is Michael Moore um, makes a ton of documentaries, but also made Canadian Bacon, which is a you know, very funny film. Yeah, definitely not a documentary, but yeah. So I guess to your point, yeah. There, there are some instances out there. It just doesn't seem as, as prevalent. And it could be a money thing, too, because documentaries don't make the money that a lot of the other um, regular films do. I think that's true, too, yeah. Well, we have some mutual friends. Uh, I was glad to uh, read in your book about your friendship with Robert Wagner. Uh, we did not know Robert, obviously, but we do know his uh, biographer, uh, Scott Iman, another great author we've enjoyed having on the show. I uh, got some folks down at TCM that you've interacted with recently. Uh, you were down in Hollywood alongside Steven Spielberg, another guy who knows his way around uh, <laughs> around directing, to present the the 4K remastered screening of uh, your dad's film Giants. Uh, James Dean, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson got him an Oscar for Best Director. What can filmmakers and directors of today learn from that movie, uh, or maybe your father's style in general? Do you, do you think that Giant can be made today and and have the same impact it did? Well, it's interesting. Uh, we screened it as you, as you mentioned at the TCM Festival, which is a great gathering. Yeah. Um, and Stephen and I introduced it at Groman's Chinese, no longer called Groman's, but the Chinese theater, with an IMAX screen now. Um, it is the same theater where we premiered it 
65 years ago. Wow. And with a full house, with this wonderful restoration that Stephen initiated, he called me and said, your father's film giant is a masterpiece. It can be improved. There's some deterioration of of the dissolves. You don't want to get, and anyway, we did this absolutely magnificent remastering of it in 4K. And to watch that film all this time later, and it plays like it did the day it opened and audiences see it, you know, on a big screen like that. And it's different than seeing it on television. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, I had did a book signing for my place in the sun the next day. And there's this amazing turnout at 11 o'clock the next morning. And most of them had been at the screening and were so impressed by, they said, by the conversation with Stephen and me in which we talked about values of filmmaking and, one one that I mentioned that I, I was young, just out of the Air Force editing when my father was editing the film. And, and he would, it's a, it's a three hour and 20 minute film that does not feel like it. It's just so beautifully constructed. And, and I got kind of gotten in and we kept refining it, and refining it. And I said, Dad, God, this picture, we just had a preview. It plays so well. Don't you think we should just put it out? And he kept working and changing a close-up here and tightening this up and changing the music a little bit. And he said, think about how many hours people are going to spend watching this film. He said, don't you think it's a good idea if we spend a little more of our time right now making it as good as we can so it's better for, for all of those hours? You know, Always thinking of the audience. <laughs> you know, and, and that was, you, you pick up on it, Matt, you know, when... In those days around the studio, studio heads often referred to the audience, you know, having the mentality of 12 or 14 year old. And my father, you ask what I learned from him is respect for the audience. He always said, trust the audience, let them give them something to think about. Don't put it all out there, leave some work for them. And, uh, and you, you saw that in giant, you know, just how it plays the same as it did. And to see it again with laughter, there's a great deal of humor in Giant. And to feel that laughter uh, with an audience is, uh, and and the other, uh, my father believed in the test of time. Do you have time for one other story? You bet. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, When he made A Place in the Sun, Montgomery Cliffs and Elizabeth Taylor, we went together to the Academy Awards. I think it was 1951. And I was, I guess, in my late teens. And I sat next to my father. Um, I, we'd come with my mother and her and his actor, his actor mother. Um, and Joseph Bankowitz, fine director, Oscar winner, came out on the stage uh, to announce the nominations for best director. And he said, uh, John Houston, African Queen, uh, William Wyler, The Desperate Hours. Vincent Minnelli, an American in Paris, Elia Kazan, a streetcar named Desire, and George Stevens, a place in the sun. Well, it was a place in the sun. I wouldn't be telling the story. <laughs> Riding home in the car, and I was a young person, and I don't know why, but was I excited or too excited about it, but for whatever reason, my father, the Oscar was on the seat between us, and he looked over and he said to me, said, you know, 
we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. Wow. He's talking about the test of time. And this yeah. is before DVDs or uh, film festivals or streaming. But he, kind of coming from the theater, you guys are actors, he knew that the value was how things last. He loved Eugene O'Neill. And, and so at 25 years, we just had to release the 70th anniversary Blu-ray of A Place in the Sun. You know, but he had that idea. And, and, and that's an important theme of my book, The Test of Time. Because he, didn't, he did not know that he was talking at that time to the future head of the American Film Institute, who would be right. <laughs> America's films. What a legacy. The American Film Institute is just one of your, your many accomplishments. I mean, you've been awarded 15 Emmys, eight Writers Guild Awards, two Peabody Awards, the Humanitas Prize, and the 2012 Honorary Academy Award. In addition to founding the American Film Institute and, and things like that, is there one accomplishment in your career that you feel most proud of? Well, gosh, um, I'm blessed with a lot of things that warm my heart. Um, I think it may be the film I made about my father in 1984. I made really one of the first films about a filmmaker. It was called George Stevens. It is called George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey. It's available on Criterion from time to time. And and you can get a DVDs from Warner Warner Brothers, but um, making that film about my father um, was and it, and it and it worked out so well. Um, I narrated it and had interviews with Catherine Hepburn and uh, all of the wonderful actors he he worked with, and and I'm really very proud of it. And you see it today, and it's if I do say so, uh, people say to me. Um, Warren Beatty just in a conversation last week said, I think it's the best film about a filmmaker there is. And it was a little bit of my effort to meet his test of the test of time about a person very important to me. Well, before we let you go, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we could talk all night, all night, e easily into the into the wee morning uh, hours, I'm sure. But you, you've got dinner plans, and we so appreciate the time you spent with us. It's been a real thrill for us. Uh, before we let you go, what's your favorite story in the book? Do you have one story that, that maybe got the ball rolling when it came to, maybe I should start writing this stuff down. Is, is there one that stands out to you? Gosh. Um... It's only 90 years in almost every, you know, film era. <laughs> and every... <laughs> No pressure. Uh... <laughs> I'll just, I'll just pick one. I don't know. And it relates to the previous. One of the most satisfying uh, things I've done, and you were also asking who I treasured working with, yeah. was working with Sidney Poitier. Mm -hmm. And um, in the 90s, I came upon or read about the Brown versus Board of Education decision about uh, eliminating segregation in public schools. And uh, I wrote a script and I took it to CBS and said, well, it, this is really a great story, but you're not going to be able to cast it. And, if you, and I said, well, I haven't really thought about that. Well, I said, well, what about Sidney Poitier? And they said kind of ruefully, oh, they said, well, we've been going to Sydney for 15 years. He won't do television. Hmm. And if you could get Sydney to say he'll read the script, we'll pay for it. Well, I went to see Sydney. And I told him what I wanted to do. And I said, I know you don't do television, 
but it takes this time to tell this story. And Sidney said to me, well, I have great respect for Thurgood Marshall. And if you come to me with a compelling script, I'll do it. So I went off to write a compelling script knowing that it all depended on one person and only one person on the planet saying yes. And Sydney said yes, and we did it together. And um, uh, it, it was called Separate But Equal. Also, Burt Lancaster played the role of the other attorney, which was part of the Supreme Court part of the case. And it won the Emmy for the best miniseries. And working with Sydney uh, was uh, just such a treasured experience that I would, and, and, and this too was a film that it does not shown widely enough, but it really tells that story of the, the end of legal segregation in American schools. Well, what a wonderful story. In a book full of wonderful stories, uh, George Stevens Jr., your, your new book is My Place in the Sun. It'll be available everywhere. Fine books are sold May 17th, just a, a couple of days away. Uh, Mr. Stevens, it's been an absolute pleasure. We wish you best of luck with the book. Are you going to be going on tour, uh, doing any book signings? Well, I'm doing, we're doing a number of things, book tours. We're going to, Tom Brokaw is introducing me at the 92nd Street Y in New York, that wonderful venue on 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 June 5th. And Michael Beschloss is going to lead a discussion, the great historian at Politics and Prose in Washington on uh, May 17th, the publication date, which coincidentally, the publication date is the date of the Brown versus a Board of Education decision by the Supreme Court. Nice. May 17th. So there's a little, a little poetry there. <laughs> well, lo- sure. Lots to lots to celebrate and uh, uh, just a wonderful time we've had uh, this afternoon with you, Mr. Stevens. Thank you for your time. And uh, we hope to cross paths again soon. Me too. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks so much. Well, a huge thank you again to our guest, award-winning director, writer, producer, playwright, and author of two books, George Stevens Jr. His newest book, My Place in the Sun, is available everywhere fine books are sold on May 17th, just a couple days away. Find links to the book on our website at heilmanandhaver.com, along with all of our past episodes, our new Arts Around the Sound segment, and all of Greg's stage and screen reviews. And if you enjoyed episode 62, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend, or three or four. You can find all of the latest on HeilmanandHaver.com, along with all of our past episodes of popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and Behind the Scenes Artist Interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. 